The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to uh, One Hour at a Time. This is John McAndrew, your guest host, uh, filling in for Mary Woods again, which I do quite often, and today we have a pretty special show, and I'm glad that I'm here to talk to our guest, who's, uh, we'll just call him Dr. Skip. His, his name is Sylvester C. Oakley. He's a doctor, a 67 graduate of Harvard College, and a 1972 graduate of Harvard Medical School. Uh, in recent years, Dr. Skip has uh, been open about his struggle with substance abuse and the loss and eventual reinstatement of his medical license, and he's received certification from the American Society of Addiction Medicine and is also a diplomat of, diplomat of the American Board of Addiction Medicine. He speaks at many, many hospitals and to, and to physicians about the perils of substance abuse and, and addiction in the medical community. And he's also the medical director of several methadone clinics in Rhode Island and co-owns a substance abuse clinic dedicated to helping others get well and regain their lives. And Dr. Skip, uh, welcome to the show. Well, it's really a privilege to be here. Every time I speak, I'm happy to be able to talk. Well, and, and you know, and I appreciate we had a little technical difficulty to start off, but we got it, got it fixed. And, and I really appreciated. When I got your book and uh, was going through it to prepare for the show, it shows a medicine bottle on the front cover with the little prescription sign. It says, Keep Out of the Reach of Children. Yes. And on the bottle is the title, From Harvard to Hell and Back. And it's about a doctor's journey through addiction to recovery. And I know many, many professionals in our country, and we have you know some that come on our show and speak, but... Uh, you're the first doctor we've had who actually has admitted that he wrote scripts for himself that we've had on the show. So thank you for sharing your story. And what can you tell us about us that uh, that got you to write this book? Well, I uh, I really was a fellow who thought that he had it all and was blessed with a lot of gifts. And um, for the first 30 or 40 years of my life, most everything I touched, I, uh, you know, was good for me. And, and I was very fortunate. And, um, but a disease was eating away at me in the inside, whether it was my own psychiatric problems and inadequacy or whatever. Um, I noticed that although I could control alcohol primarily to begin with, and I certainly controlled it in my early years, it seemed to be calling to me more and more when things started to go sour. And in retrospect, clearly over the years, um, things went more poorly as time went on. But I actually made it all the way into my uh, early 50s before things came crashing down. Uh, I had 
been trying to figure out the illness, and therein lie my biggest problem. It uh-huh. wasn't until I stopped trying to figure it out that um, that I realized that the only way to do it was to stop. And that seems obvious, but until it happens to you, uh, you, you don't really know. So is that harder for a doctor? You, The first chapter of your book is called Pills on the Floor, and you might share the first few paragraphs with, with our listeners because... Uh, this is sure. not, and I'm sure you didn't plan on when you graduated from medical school. No, I to didn't. Get to, get to the point. I mean, it's very powerful. Pills on the floor. Wow. Well, uh, that that's taken actually from from a, a, a plea bargain I was making with the San Diego district attorney. Would you want me to read the first paragraph, or, or well, just talk tell about us, it? tell us about that story? Oh, okay. What, what had happened was, um, after uh, I had had several surgeries and then had a, an issue with some chronic pain, which I had taken care of pretty well with anti-inflammatory drugs, non-addicting drugs, until they uh, shut my kidneys down, I did had flirted with opiates in the past, and um, so I was aware that I could get a hold of some Vicodin to take care of the pain that the anti-inflammatories are taking care of in order to keep my hectic schedule of working. And um, what I did was, after I ran out of the doctors who were prescribing it to me legitimately, I found, as I believe now, it's not a good idea to take opiates for chronic pain of any kind, and I know that's an argument in the literature, but nonetheless, I started to... um, prescribe for myself. And um, what I did uh, was enlist nurses eventually in the hospitals that I worked at, and they were kind enough and I guess enjoyed working with me enough that they made some silly and bad decisions for themselves. And so I had a bunch of nurses driving all over San Diego County with prescriptions I wrote for the nurse, and then she would bring them back to me. And I would uh, I would take as many as I could get a hold of. In the last 40 to 50 days of my before my fall, I was up to 150 Vicodin a day, and uh, that was I had developed tolerance as everyone does who takes opiates over any period of time, and um, was finding it very difficult to even keep that number of pills in my stomach. But uh, when I finally get caught, um, it's because uh, a pharmacist had turned me in. God bless him, and mm-hmm. the state had been uh, the, the San Diego County uh, uh, attorneys, uh, district attorney had been. Um, uh, investigating me, and for several months they were tracking me down. And to make a long story short, when I finally uh, surrendered my license, uh, they actually came to get it at my house. But when, when I um, when I showed up, um, talked to the medical board, and then had to go see the legal authorities for the criminal aspects of that crime, right. we had decided to plea bargain um, down to one count of fraudulent prescription writing. And um, we had really been working for some period of time where I had admitted everything I'd done. And I remember the, the female attorney looking me in the eye and saying, you know, there's something wrong with this. I just don't understand how anybody could take 150 pills a day. You must have been selling some. And I said, ma'am, I, believe me, I, I did everything. I, I mean, if, if a pill rolled out of my hand, I would have gotten down on the floor and, and searched for it. I needed every single pill just to keep my head above water. And at that point, she was skeptical. She was didn't think it was going to be an honest flea bargain until I said, 
Ma'am, can I ask you this? You've been investigating me for the past several months all over San Diego County. Has anybody anywhere at any time ever said that I was selling the pills? And a light sort of went on her eyes, and she said, no, no, we have absolutely no evidence of that. It was just her disbelief that I couldn't take that many pills. And, of course, you develop tolerance not only to the opiates, but it's recently been shown that Tylenol, uh, which is very poisonous to your liver, if you do build up a gradual um, you know, immunity to that. And so um, that's why, while I was talking with my, my great co-author, Kerry Zuckus, uh, who can weave a tale about uh-huh. this, that's what he grabbed and said, you know what, pills on the floor, that's where we're going to start. And even though that wasn't the end of my, of my problems, um, it seemed like a good way to start. Yeah. Well, and, and it's very, the book starts as I opened the pill bottle with great anticipation. One Vicodin lost its way and landed on the floor, skipping and sliding away to parts unknown. Since I took 150 of these little babies each day, what was one stray pill to me but a penny to a millionaire? Yet I immediately dropped to my knees, searching for it like a near-blind man, feeling around for a precious contact lens, you know, and I, you know, I mean, you, let's go back and you do a really nice job in the next chapter kind of telling us who you are and Skip, you uh, came from very, you know, meager beginnings and all these things and worked your way, but you you had everything going that a guy could possibly have. Uh, I'm always interested in sports and, and, uh, you know, your football career and, and becoming a doctor. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the golden boy, as you call it. <laughs> well, uh, that's what a lot of people referred to me as sort of jokingly, but, um, you know, I, I'm sure I, I thought it was true at the time. Uh, when I was young, I, I, I was large for my for my age, uh, but I was kind of a smart aleck in my local grammar school. And so uh-huh. when I went when I went to school, uh, I very quickly loved learning, and I came from two very bright parents, um, both born in America, one an Irish-Scottish mother who was wonderful and a lot smarter than my dad, who was already the smartest guy in town, according to everybody, and um, we, we we had a good life. Um, nobody in my immediate household drank or showed any signs of drug abuse, and I loved school, and Mm-hmm. I guess the one the one thing that happened as I went through school was I was a smart aleck, but when you're a, a couple inches taller and a little bit heavier than most of your older, smaller uh, schoolmates who might be a year or two ahead, and when you're really kind of a pompous little jerk, uh, you tend to get beaten up. So all the way through grammar school, uh, although I did very well, as most doctors do, and a lot of other people who aren't doctors do, um, I, I suddenly found myself getting beaten up and crying over in the corner and thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I defend myself? And then um, the NFL started to be televised in, in the Boston area, uh, the New York Giants on black and white TV, and I thought, you know what? I kind of like those guys. They're doing a pretty good job, and maybe my size will help me with that. So it became a salvation for me. And to boot, my mother, um, whom I loved dearly and who didn't drink a, a bit, um, she used to sing a little ditty to me, you got to be a football hero to get along with the beautiful girls. And I thought, well, there you go. 
I think football uh, is for me. <laughs> so I, I suddenly made that a mission in life. I really didn't have a lot of talent. You didn't need to have a lot of talent to become a lineman. And so that's how I, I got into football. But the grades just kept coming. It was pretty easy. Um, I loved being on top of the, uh, the class and being the first and having my hand up all the time and really being an obnoxious little brat. Then I get into a pretty good Jesuit high school in Boston, a very good Jesuit high school in Boston. Uh-huh. And, um, and then the grades seemed to come as easily in high school as they did in, 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 in Brockton in a little Catholic high school, a little Catholic grammar school. Then um, I found that I, I, I was pretty good at football. And the interesting part, my first really foray into any problems with addiction or with substance abuse at that time was because I had done so well, because I was a co-captain of the team and I was making various uh, honor roll teams, and right. I was getting pretty much all A's. Suddenly, the Ivy League schools recruited me, and even a, real, a few real football schools wanted to see me. And, um, and then what did they do? But at the end of the season, they would have me over for a weekend. And the first thing they do after I met the football coach, walked around, took a few look at classrooms, was fix me up with girls or go to a fraternity party and serve beer. Uh-huh. And so I started to drink then, but... My, my first foray into drinking um, seemed very controllable to me. I enjoyed the early relaxation it provided for a young kid in college thinking he's a big shot. But, um, but as football became more and more important to me, I was able to control drinking around football. So there was the first inkling in my brain that something wasn't right, but I thought I could control it. And that I think I can control it went on to, to make me not get smart until I was over 50. And so we're that's talking how... to Dr. Skip Sfiokland. Uh, we're talking about his book, From Harvard to Hell. And when we get back, we're going to follow him from high school and the college into his football career. And uh, stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. There are many who have faced life-changing adversity and have demonstrated the resiliency of the human spirit in spite of that. You'll hear these moving stories and learn about the impact of life's challenges when you tune into Inspired Journeys, Overcoming Adversity and Thriving with your host, Lisa Ference. You'll find meaning in some of the most difficult traumatic experiences. And by doing so, you can pay it forward and help others through their healing processes. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. 
Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Again, this is John McAndrew, and we've been talking to Dr. Dr. Skip, Skip Diokla, and uh, we've been talking about his, his new book, and it's called From Harvard to Hell and Back, and again, the front cover is very, very compelling. It's a medicine bottle, and uh, this is about a doctor who goes through addiction. Really, the life and death of Dr. Skip, and he comes back and when we left off, Skip, you were you were leaving high school to go play college football. What a thrill, huh? Well, it was yes, it was quite a thrill. Um, I uh, I was fortunate enough to get into just about everywhere that I had bothered to apply, and uh, um, although several of the Ivy League schools were very solicitous and told me how wonderful I was and had me back three uh, three or two or three times uh, weekends. I did go to Harvard and uh, one time, and it, the only good thing they had to say about, about me there was the uh, freshman football coach looked at me and he said, if you want to play here, you better lose some of that baby fat. So naturally, when I got accepted to Harvard and all the other places, I, I chose Harvard. And um, and then I just went on to uh, to fight and scrimp, and I'd bid an end, actually, in high school and uh, went on to become a tackle and did did fairly well. And football was, although I did do some drinking like most college uh, kids uh, in between the football seasons, again, I was uh, able to uh, put the drinking off pretty much, certainly during preseason. And, and, and I thought, you know, I may drink much too much occasionally, but I, I have it under control. Then it came time, what am I going to do with my life? And, um, and I thought, well, maybe being a doctor is good. Um, I had once, my mother had the second successful surgery of a mitral valve back in when I was a young kid and I saw this doctor come out from the operating room and tell me that my mother was going to live when I was in the sixth grade and I do remember how powerful I felt on that but as I as you know when I was in the sixth grade I didn't pay a lot of attention to it going forward but I thought near the end of uh, my college days I ought to go and be a doctor that sounded like a good thing to do I thought they made a lot of money had a lot of prestige and I didn't know at the time I was wrong about that but um, I thought, okay, um, sounds good. I like it. And I uh, started to apply to uh, uh, medical schools. Uh, and uh, frankly, the only medical school I applied to was Harvard because Harvard was, uh, and I wasn't at all sure I'd get in. In fact, um, there was a, only a small chance, but I happened to get the application in um, and because it was the first one before football season. It was, it was due in those days in August. And the system in the old days was you had to apply to each medical school separately. And mm-hmm. I kept postponing, and this is part of the immaturity of, of that I think goes along with nascent um, addicts. Um, I kept postponing putting, uh, applying to all the other schools, and certainly I needed safety schools and other schools to apply to. 
Uh, but by the end of the football season, I was enjoying my notoriety so much and enjoying my life so much. I thought, well, if I haven't heard from Harvard by Christmas, then I'll apply to the two or three schools left that didn't have a deadline until January. And then I got the telegram saying I went to Harvard Medical School. And um, at the same time, I was fortunate enough to get a letter from um, the Bears, uh, Chicago Bears Scouting Organization, not drafting me, certainly I was not drafted, but asking me to come to free agent camp. Um, and uh, and I had a little dilemma for a while. Should I should I go try to uh, hit Dick Butkus, who was still playing at the time, because they wanted me to be a linebacker and get actually get hit by him? And I did. I was drawn to that. Um, or should I go go to Harvard Medical School? And um, frankly, I was in a dilemma until I went home and talked to my father about it. And he said, "Don't be crazy. Go to medical school." And to this day, to this day, I'm not sure. I, not that I would have made the team, but I, I would have loved to uh, to at least go into free agent camp. Uh, well, you, and you may never have survived. The nope, you're right. Because you know that's that's a pretty dangerous thing. In yep. your book, you talked about playing a couple of years. The last two years of football, they moved you in as a tackle, basically right. in the middle of the line, right? Which is where most addicts want to be, right? Right in the middle of the action. And what an excellent thought. <laughs> exactly and right. I hadn't thought of it that way before. <laughs> well, yep. so you had a couple of guys pounding on you constantly, didn't you? And uh, yep. where was where was your drinking? And, and it, in this period, did you take any drugs for pain or anything? No, I, I really didn't. In, in, in I mean, I think I experimented with a little bit of marijuana. Marijuana was around in, in the late 60s at, at Harvard College. It was uh, very, very taboo. Uh, I, I, I resisted for a long time. I only uh, tried it a little bit in the, in the spring after my football season was over. I certainly didn't do it um, around. Did you, uh, did you inhale it? Uh, oh yes, absolutely. Okay. I inhaled it, and I, I, I frankly enjoyed it a, a few times. But uh, um, I, uh, by the time I get to medical school, it, uh, it was, I was so frightened to be in medical school that that, that scared me, and I, and I didn't I didn't use marijuana in medical school. I did, however, kind of have a catastrophe my first year in medical school and on, on my own because I I thought I could just keep breezing on through medical school the way I had through college with all great grades and. Uh, and so then I uh, I began to drink some more um, and and occasionally take performance enhancing drugs otherwise known as some amphetamines when I was uh, when I was at uh, the medical school because uh, I really thought I was uh, now in with really serious people for the first time in my life and uh, and I didn't fare well the first year I actually had to repeat my first year at Harvard Medical School um, but then I found uh, surgery um, in medical school, and I rededicated myself, and I thought, wow, if I can make a living doing this, all my other ideas and stuff will just uh, will be gel. I wanted to be the world's greatest gallbladder surgeon. I know that might sound silly to people, but it doesn't have a lot of sex appeal. But unless you've been in the right upper quadrant exploring the gallbladder under the liver, you just don't know what life is. I really love that. Now they do it through a scope. But um, that gave me a new life, and I started to do pretty well in medical school. Uh-huh. And, and you, so the drug taking de- decreased. Yeah, you, de- you dedicate. And, and I think what's so compelling about all this is, is you know, the people that are listening, you, you just have everything. And uh, you're a lucky guy. You know, you were way up here, and you meet, um, you talk about meeting the summer of love and meeting your wife. What is your wife's name, Maureen? Maureen. 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 Her name was Maureen, yep. 
She was. Uh, she. We were fixed up by a, by a, by a cousin that I was friends with, and we both agreed on the first date that we had a pretty good time, but we didn't have to go out again. Then she went away and did a year at the Sorbonne while I uh, uh, finished uh, uh, my uh, college. And uh, when she came back, um, we uh, came back, and she was going to finish at Tufts University, uh, Jackson College at the time, and uh, and then we started the date and. Um, uh through the uh we decided to get married and um so by the uh, by the end of my first year of medical school I asked her to marry me I had never and still have never seen anybody as beautiful um as uh she was the first day she turned around and looked at me and um and oh. she unfortunately I guess from some people's point of view but from my point of view she saved my life she stuck with me through thick and thin when we ended up uh broke, disgraced, and ashamed. Um, she had to go back to work after 40 years and uh, was uh, was able to hold the family together and, and they were my life. Mm-hmm. So some problems start to rise up in this period and um, with alcohol and with other issues for you. I, I, you know, you put a lot of weight on your shoulders. You also got a Heisman Trophy nomination or a vote, didn't you? One vote out of many thousand. I got one. (laughs) One vote. I have to hasten to add. Yeah, no, no. It was one kind sports writer in Boston who gave me a third place vote. But as far as I'm concerned, that's one vote for the Heisman Trophy because that's what it was. (laughs) Anybody who knows the number of votes required to win a Heisman Trophy will suddenly realize that one third place vote doesn't get you very far. But it's not a dishonest statement. (laughs) But it's very typical with with alcoholics and addicts we talked to on the show. Um, In hindsight, you can see the pressure you put on to yourself. So your relationship with Maureen, things start to show, don't they? Yes. They do, and and um, we rushed into having a bunch of kids, and they were the greatest things that could ever be. But on the other hand, they did add to the pressure, and you know there are millions of people who handle that pressure correctly. What distinguishes an addict and our inability to cope with it is um, well, I'm still searching for. Um, but yes, uh, she uh, fortunately was a rocket Gibraltar, and uh, somehow, as kids tend to do, they. They oftentimes uh, don't blame the addict as much as they ought to. Uh, they just can't bring themselves to do that. And I've been very fortunate with the kids who remained very, very loving to me um, in spite of the fact that uh, that they have a lot of reason to be very, very angry with me. So Maureen is the glue that held that all together. And certainly for a couple of years, we were really at loggerheads. And uh, I was running away and running away to hide. And, and um, and without her strength, I I'd be dead today. Mm-hmm. So you start, you 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 share with us in this book now. Uh, things start to get a little darker uh, with your drinking. Yes. Um, you're talking about your surgery. Right. First, then you make a move, which takes you out. Um, you know, how you got from there to becoming sort of the doctor to the stars is an incredible well, leap, isn't it? 
It is. It was a, a happenstance in a lot of in a lot of ways. I loved my surgery. I, I, I loved, as I mentioned before, the excitement of being there. I, I had decided to leave the Boston area and go to San Diego, where they had a brand new medical school, UCSD, that was really very stocked with wonderful, wonderful surgeons. And I went there, became an intern in surgery, and. Uh, and, um, you know, although I did drink some time, there's not a lot of time to drink as an intern or a resident. And um, near in my, in my senior year of surgery, when I was getting ready to have to choose a career and, and decide mm-hmm. where to go, I mean, I was enjoying my general surgery. I had a completely innocent accident and had nothing to do with alcohol or drugs. I, uh, a, a large glass bowl exploded and cut my hand. Uh, my wrist came down on my hand and cut uh, five tendons, uh, my ulnar artery, my ulnar nerve. I was in surgery for nine hours and then in a cast for nine months. And that's my dominant hand. And so suddenly my surgical career was at risk. And the operating room where I had loved to be now became a place of fear for me because when I took the cast off and went back in, I couldn't operate the way I used to. I had been fairly, uh, had some fairly good psychomotor skills, some fairly facile hands uh, at the time. But um, suddenly I, I couldn't feel anything. I didn't have good coordination. My chief of surgery, uh, God bless him, was willing to have me hang on until I recovered more. But at the time, um, living in San Diego, um, I uh, there was a new calling in, in emergency medicine. And again, I was struck with a little bit of luck um, in that it was a burgeoning field. My hand was good enough to certainly do the operating room, I mean, the, the emergency room. And uh, and suddenly I took a job that was paid 10 times as much as I made as a surgical resident up in Los Angeles. And that was good in that it allowed me to pay the bills and allowed me to heal my hand and become pretty good at it. But it also opened up a total freedom where I was my own boss. I was making, uh, at the time in the early 70s, uh, you know, almost $200,000 a year and yeah. um, had free free reign. And I started to um, I started to deteriorate. Had a lot of drinking, and I yep. uh, thought if I just keep buying toys and and sending my kids to college and taking care of them and having a beautiful house in La Jolla, um, that my degenerate lifestyle on the side and on the sly drew me away yep. from Maureen, and and I take full responsibility for turning into a really really bad guy. We've been talking to Doctor Skip and. Uh his little journey, and it follows his book very much from Harvard to Helen back, and we'll give you some information on how to contact Dr. Skip and how to get his book uh, when we come back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you have undue stress in your life? It may be more than just a hormonal imbalance. It could also be related to environmental factors, genetic modifications, chemicals, radiation, and more. 
We are living with revolutionary changes in our environment, and outside influences have just as much to do with stress and poor health as internal influences. Join Dr. Shanhong Liu every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time for Vibrant Life, Restore the Roots of Health on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Why do people behave the way they do? The study of human behavior is one of the most interesting facets of life. Human behavior gets played out in a limitless number of ways. Now, there's a radio program that explains the why and the how of what we do. Human Behavior, What a Trip, is hosted by Dr. Jonathan Brower and will include interesting guests as well as call interaction from people like you. Let's have fun with this together. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. Of course, I'm John McAndrew, and I want to remind everybody to, uh, you can get the archive list and the guests that are on our show on Westbridge's website as well, which is www.westbridge.org, and you can go to the One Hour at a Time button and see what Mary's up to, or, uh, or if I'm the host, who our guests are, and, uh, also, Dr. Skip, could you give us uh, your website so that folks can go there? Yes, I can. It's uh, the name of my clinic. It's www.medicalassistedrecovery.com. Okay. And can people who have questions for you or wanted to talk to you, you know, sort of personally, are they able to contact you through that website? Yes, yes, they can, or they can directly email me at, at the, the email I check every day at drskip, Dr. Skip, M-A-R, that's D-R-S-K-I-P-M-A-R at AOL.com, and I'll be happy to discuss anything with anybody at any time. Great. Well, we'll give that again at the end of the show. Okay. So we have um, we have gone through the pills on the floor and, and uh, the summer of love and... and uh, the deepest cut, which is uh, this injury to your hand, was a, was really a big moment in your life. And now you're out in L.A., Skip, and uh, you get a job. Your income quadruples. How is it that you became, you were kind of known as the doctor to the stars? And uh, can you tell us how that door opened up for you? Yes. Um, my wife's sister um, was dating a, a fellow who was very famous in, in the L.A. music scene in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and he, he was a, a, an owner of several hot clubs on the, on the Sunset Strip. And through um, double dating with him and my wife, uh, 
uh, he be, he and I became fast friends, and um, he's a he, he's a legend. He's gone now, bless him. But he's a legend in the industry and quite a character. And he started. He called me in one day to help me with a very hot rock star from New York who had sold out his local club in L.A. who had a sore throat. And he said, "Look, I've taken him to a couple of the best Beverly Hills surgeons, um, ear, nose, and throat surgeons. Can you come and take a look at him?" And I said, I'd, "I'd be happy to do that." But what do I know that a couple of Beverly Hills ENT guys don't know? I'm just an ER doc at that time and I went and um, I, I met a very famous rock and roller who was sitting there with a bottle of scotch in one hand um, and uh, a babe under each arm, uh, a joint in the, the ashtray and a cigarette in the ashtray and I went, right. in medicine <laughs> everywhere <laughs> yeah and um, and I said hi, and, um, and and bottom line, I started to take care of him. I said, well, if we're gonna, if we're worried about your throat for tonight's performance, we got to we got to put all this stuff down, and uh, and, and then uh, we hit it off well. I, I gave him a, a bit of a spray for his throat that you know was more placebo than anything else, but he went on and he performed well. And I decided that I I, I like I like seeing the stars. And then I went on really to take care of a bunch of stars. It really had legitimate medical illnesses, and I became known for being available, going with them, and, and able to uh, cross the country. And, in fact, in my own sort of geographic as, as a, an addict alcoholic, in, uh, even though not completely out of control yet, I had moved back and forth across the country a couple of times, and I, I was able to take care of stars and fly, you know, uh, for, for the next 15 or 20 years. Very heady experience. Um, really some interesting people, um, but it just made me feel more and more powerful as I was uh, just becoming more and more distanced from myself. The, the image of who I thought I was was certainly widening from what my actions were showing me. So that, uh, but the money flowed easily, and um, and uh, my kids were growing up, and everything on the surface looked really good. Um, I just wasn't doing very well inside. Uh-huh. Can you recall now, in hindsight, when the addiction, the alcoholism, whatever you want to call all that, uh, started to take over as opposed to the integrity? that Because you wanted to have integrity. I mean, all doctors do. Right. But at really some point, can't... you had to have looked in the mirror and gone, oh, man, I, I I'm, can't... Lo- I'm losing. I'm losing. I think I think it was my last move to to San Diego. I had been back in Los Angeles, uh, back on the East Coast for a while. Back to Los Angeles, everything seemed to be going along well. But um, uh, uh, I had at that point ballooned up to 400 pounds, and so clearly I was unhappy. And even though I can kind of hold it well, nobody holds 400 pounds well unless you're 20 feet tall. And uh, I ended up having a surgery. And that is what really got me into realizing um, that I was completely out of control. Something I didn't even—I didn't fully realize until a few years later. But, but I think as I kept having to move and things didn't quite go the way I wanted, and I was very disappointed that I hadn't become a, a much more academic surgeon. Although I was very fortunate, I always in my mind, put my patients first, and even, even, I mean, that was very important to me, and it saved me from, as far as I know, ever really hurting anybody. Uh, I was very fortunate that way. So it wasn't until my late 40s that I really realized that things were not what I thought they'd be when I graduated from Harvard Medical School, that I had really become more of a 
you know, sort of a playboy doctor than anything else. And it's not that I was a great playboy. That's not the issue. The issue is that I, I was running around. I was certainly doing some good works. And in the emergency room, I once calculated that I had um, very at least a thousand people I had taken from cardiac arrest at least into the ICU. Um, and so I really had become very skilled at some of the issues that real emergency room doctors work at, but there was a disconnect. I just wasn't happy, and, and I can't really pinpoint it until my late 40s, and uh, life was slipping away. But then it really slipped, didn't it? Oh, it slipped hard, and uh, after and that really surgery, down. yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I ended up getting the Vicodin, and, and the Vicodin we talked about before where I was up to 150 a day, and uh, and that's when the medical board came, and they decided to uh, uh, make an example of me, which they had every right to do. They took my license away, told me I could reapply in two years. It took me five years in California with my doing everything I could, um, you know, uh, that they'd asked me, and they kept moving the goalposts. And finally, I decided, even though I hadn't had a drink or a drug in many years, um, and, and, and surrender had occurred, and I was really feeling that I, I, uh, I could make it a day at a time when I decided we better move back to, uh, to Rhode Island. But the, the worst thing was when I thought I should have been at the bottom after my pills, and I had a couple of months when I didn't do drugs or alcohol, and, and I've never had a pill since the last, since the day the board showed up at my home. I, uh, what I did was find that I slipped back into alcohol, and for the next nine months, it was every bit as disabling as Vicodin, and I, I just didn't have the courage to kill myself. In retrospect, I'm glad. And I used to go to AA meetings drunk and then used to hide up on the roof of the apartment that my wife rented, a little tiny apartment house uh, apartment over a, over a Bikram yoga studio. It was very hot and very uncomfortable, and uh, I was up there hiding. I, many nights I slept on the beach. It wasn't that I was technically homeless because my wife was paying for an apartment after we had to sell our million-dollar house in La Jolla uh, because I'd been spending a million dollars and making 500000 a year. And to the IRS took it away from me. So with all of that coming down on me, sitting up on a roof trying to figure out how I could stop drinking, boom, I just had a thought as I was sitting there trying to figure it out. You know, I'm not like those alcoholics. I'm one of them. And at that very moment, um, things changed for me. Now, I'm not one of the more spiritually certain. I, I do think it was a spiritual moment for me. But if people want to argue that it was insight, um, you know, if it was just I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, uh, and I finally got as smart as I thought I was, I don't know. But from that moment on, I, to this day, have been fortunate to uh, to be winning the battle. And, I, and, I, and not only winning the battle, but but experiencing the joy of fighting back, even though it took me years to get where I am now. And if I have any any message for folks out there, it's the joy of recovery that is not covered so much. Everybody worries about the drudgery of getting clean, getting sober, but, boy, there's so much joy at the other end of that tunnel, and that tunnel can be as short as you make it. Skip, your spiraling down uh, was directly related to... People were on to you about the prescription stuff, which, which is really about in that first chapter, the pills on the floor. Right. And then you started getting all these nurses involved. Right. And then you were kind of a hot shot. And boy, that when they came and took your license, it, the spiral was really quick. Because you talk about 
just disappearing for days and oh yes between your wife and going from way up there to you went to a couple of fancy treatment places and psychologists and you ended up at a pretty low end facility didn't you I, I certainly did. Um, well, we we had lost all our money, and and I had struggled. I'd gone to a very, uh, you know, a, a place for recovery for uh, where I went inpatient on a side street in Los Angeles for a couple of weeks, and uh, I actually uh, did okay in there and uh, for a week or two, and then I started to feel uh, feel like I had it knocked, and I went out and drank again, and 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 ended up um, getting worse and worse. The the um, I, I the the pills should have been the end. As I drove by my home one day, I saw these three people at the door, and I thought they were Jehovah's Witnesses. But in fact, they were the medical board that had actually come to my home. That's pretty impressive. They don't usually do that. Um, and and then I drove and went and hid wow. in a famous hotel in La Jolla, and drank myself. Um, you know, uh, 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 until I realized I had to go back and, and face the music. But wow. I did. I did. I did then venture down in, into the alcohol for a while. Yeah. We're going to be back in our, in our last set. I think we're going to talk about the joy of recovery. But uh, oh your story, we've been on this journey, and, uh, you know, from the golden boy uh, to all the losses and the gains in your life, and uh, you call it down in the gutter and up on the roof, and we just talked about that. Yep. You're, uh, you know, and, and you used a term, which I, I'm going to remember today. I'm not spiritually certain, but... Uh, I think that's something good to leave folks with. We're going to be right back after a short break. Uh, We'll see you in a minute. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This, uh, this is John McAndrew, and we've been talking to uh, Dr. Skip Siokla about his book, From Harvard to Hell and Back, The Doctor's Journey Through Addiction to Recovery. And we, uh, it's really a very powerful, compelling story, and it's just the truth. And, and you know, it's, it's compelling for a doctor to have gone through this. And uh, what's even more compelling is, is what Dr. Skip is doing now and you know we talked a little bit about the joy of recovery skip and um you know when when people like you speak uh folks will listen i mean and and especially when it pertains to addiction and medicines and uh you know other doctors and professionals so you're doing really a lot of interesting stuff and i want to make sure this last segment we kind of share your joy in recovery also your action in recovery well, I I, uh, I I do really firmly believe that the, the the minute of surrender is the critical moment, and I mean that's not new. Everybody knows that, but having experienced it myself, um, that that is really victory in this war against substance abuse. At least victory for today. It's not just a ceasefire. When you when you surrender, you you actually begin to to win the war and. Um, that day I climbed off the roof realizing I wasn't like those alcoholics. I was one of them. That was my surrender. And from that day forward, although I will say there have been occasional fleeting moments when I wanted to use or quit, um, it doesn't last but a second or two. What I decided to do was to get into medicine where I could, I could make a living and give back what I, what I had learned. Um, and, but I didn't want to just do it based on my own recovery. And so I decided to study and become board certified in addiction medicine and really learn the medical aspects of this. Doctors haven't had a great place in addiction for a long time. Mostly it's been run by people in recovery who weren't doctors. And, and there's a lot to be said for all the contributions to people, but, but there are new meds on the market and there are ways to try to help people get closer to getting that, that surrender. And, um, so I began to study when I realized California was going to make it very, very difficult for me to come back, I, I, I was able to uh, uh, contact some doctors in uh, in Rhode Island. I had had licenses in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and I had just let them lapse before, and so I decided, let me go back to the East Coast. That was my wife's suggestion to begin with, and uh, and I, I decided to come back and um, and apply for a license in Rhode Island, and very many people here helped me, and Along the way, the joys of recovery started to unfold. I, I had a, my first grandson was born, and none of my seven and a half grandchildren, I got one on the way, have ever seen me impaired. My wonderful, beautiful children, for whom I'm grateful every day, unfortunately did see me impaired, certainly near the end. And um, the joy of having a little one-and-a-half-year-old grandson doing a pirouette because he's the only guy around that wants to see you when you show up because everybody else is so disgusted with you, that, that begins the joy. But the joy now is getting up every morning and just thinking, wow, I've got another chance at life, and everything good happens to people who stop drinking and drugging, even if it's not the physical things, although they seem to follow success just like everybody else. 
the most important thing is that every day I can I can help somebody at least try to edge them toward and, and advise them in how maybe, just perhaps maybe, what worked for me might work for them. And, uh, and so the joy now I have is all day, every day, I, I do see people in my own office here. I have just uh, finished relationships with uh, uh, several of the methadone clinics. I needed to learn methadone, and methadone clinics need doctors. So uh, I'm finishing up my methadone uh, career. That was several hours every morning for a while to teach me more about the heroin addicts because although opiate addiction is very similar to the prescription drug abuse, which has just recently surpassed heroin as the main cause of addiction, um, opiate addiction, I needed to learn about that. So I'm happy every day doing what I'm doing. I get up every morning and, and thrilled that I can go and, and hopefully make a difference to someone and, and bring my life back. Um, Skip, can you tell me a little bit more about the clinic that you're, you co-own it, you obviously work there, um, could you tell us more about your clinic? My, my clinic is open to addictions of all type. I mean, we um, certainly, the, the most common addiction currently in Rhode Island and across the country, I believe, is a secondary to um, use of marijuana is certainly opiate addiction. And uh, there's a, a drug that's been out seven or eight years, which is very helpful, uh, Suboxone, which I think... Uh, um, could be the subject of another whole hour, but basically I, I uh, have brought along all the good people uh, in recovery who uh, uh, to help me op- open my own clinic, and I have a full-service clinic here where we uh, treat people with opiate addiction, cocaine addiction, benzo addiction, um, and, and alcoholism. I have contracts with the Nursing Board of Rhode Island. Um, I, t- I see doctors who are impaired from the Impaired Physicians Committee of Rhode Island Health um, mm-hmm. Uh, medical society, and we see, evaluate, and treat people. We have an intensive outpatient program that goes on. It's a completely outpatient facility in Warwick, Rhode Island, but it uh, we handle all kinds of addictions, and we're busy. Uh, we're busy five days a week. Um, what is the name of your clinic? Medical Assisted Recovery. Okay, and that is the name, and that's the same as the, the website, website www.medicalassistedrecovery.com, and. I want to make sure I give your email address again. It's uh, drskipmar.com. Right, and that's drskip, not, not spelled out, drskipmar uh, at aol.com, correct. At aol.com, and people can contact you and, uh, and you're, asked to speak, you're asked to speak around the country, and if folks wanted you to come and talk or contact you for that, that's I would love the same to do it. Same place to go. My great I, I, you know, I want to thank you before we go any further and, um, you know, to come out and uh, in the medical community, uh, we need, you know, we need more people like you uh, to come out that have been through it. And for a doctor to surrender, I mean, it's almost something that's hard for people to imagine, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yes. You know, and, and, a really compelling piece of your story is you went from that, I won't say how many pounds you weighed, that very large defensive tackle, yep. um, banging heads, you know, and you went through this journey of addiction and then into recovery. And then there you are as a granddad with that little baby boy. And it's almost when, when you get into recovery, and I've heard the people share this on the show, Watching that little baby grow up is kind of like you, isn't it? 
Oh, wow, yes, it really is. And you, and you want to make sure that everything can be as right as it can possibly be, and you're going to listen to everything he says to you because you just want to tell him the truth all the time. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. It really is, and I, I certainly appreciate your uh, um, your understanding of the illness and, and how much you uh, how much you've helped me put it in context for this talk. I thank you very much. Thank you, Skip. Again, one hour at a time with Mary Woods, and we want to encourage everyone to to please keep tuning in. And we want to thank you, those that do. And you can also find the archive shows, uh, you know, on our website at westbridge.org, and also at one hour at a time. And again, Dr. Skip, thank you very much. And we shall uh, looking forward to everybody listening to us next time. Thank you. Thank you, John. I hope I hope we meet someday. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.